Jim White, it is brilliant to have you with me for 20 Questions With. You have co-written this book, Deadline Day, and that is, I guess, the hook for our conversation. It takes in a a lot of your career. It takes in the excitement of Deadline Day. It, It talks about the ways in which the game, the beautiful game football has changed over the years because you've been in football for so long so we try and get a sense of the book try and get a sense of of you and your achievements and I guess the 20 questions start now this is good let's do it Matt I play football every Thursday Jim I've tried <laughs> to get to a lot of live games Premier League games England games I've got my own answer to this but I want to know your answers to what's so great about football oh what a great question to start us off with I realised back in 1986, Matt, I'll be a lot older than you, mate, what is so good about football. I mean, I I went to Mexico in 1986 to the World Cup finals uh, with Scotland, and that's when I went from kind of news reporting at Scottish TV to football reporting. But, I mean, I was brought up by a Rangers-supporting dad in Glasgow who was very good, my old man Robbie, no longer with us. But one weekend he'd take me to Celtic Park. Then the next weekend he'd take me to Fur Hill. Then the next weekend he would take me to Ibrooks, And I get a real flavour of it all with him. And I grew up in a football-loving family because of him. And then I went to Scottish TV in 1979 um, and I worked in the newsroom, but as I said to you, a few years later, they said to me, why don't you go to Mexico? Mexico uh, City, Scotland are going to be there and cover Scotland in the World Cup. And that, that World Cup, Maradona, Hand of God, etc. That is really when I fell in love with football. But I mean, I saw so many big games in Glasgow with my old man that um, I couldn't help but go in that direction, Matt. I mean, I saw Scotland, England and 130,000 at Hamden. Um, he would take me to European nights at Celtic. I mean, just huge, huge games. And the atmosphere and everything that went with it really gripped me. And then I took it into my work. And like you, we are blessed, mate, to do what we do, honestly. Getting up in the morning and knowing that you want to be doing what you're doing and that what you're doing <laughs> is your passion, yeah. but also a means of, of making a living. I tell you what, that 1986 World Cup... 1990, Italian 90 was my first World Cup. I'm 43. But what a tournament that was in 86. And in fact, one of your predecessors as a guest on 20 Questions is Peter Reid, one of the men that Maradona ran around to score the other world-famous goal in that quarterfinal against England. Whisper it softly, but maybe he wouldn't have scored that goal if Brian Robson had been fit. (laughs) I think you've got a very good point. And of course, I was there looking at Scotland all the time, Matt. You know, um, in 86, uh, following Scotland was amazing because if if you cast your mind back, uh, Mexico had been ravaged by an earthquake. And to be quite honest, it was too late for FIFA to divert it and move it elsewhere. It should never really have been held in Mexico, to be honest. The place was a bit of a mess. Scotland played their first game. uh, They were based in a place called Netza, and they played their first game against Denmark. Charlie Nick, my longtime friend, Charlie Nicholas, was playing in it. He got carted off in that game. We lost at 1-0. We went to Carretero and we lost 2-1. Gordon Strachan scored a goal, but it was too short to put his foot up on the the, um, banister, the barricade behind the goal. And then in the the final game, we, we had to do something against Uruguay and we couldn't do it. And the Uruguayans had a guy sent off inside a minute, which is still a record for a red card in the World Cup finals. And we couldn't beat them. 10 against 11, we couldn't do it. So that was that. But I always remember it. It was a phenomenal experience. I'll never forget it. And that's what really got me involved in it. Now, football, as we know, it can be divisive. And it's built, of course, on one team playing against another team. There are huge rivalries, not least between Rangers and Celtic. And we know that there have been dark days in football with hooliganism, but it does have a way of bringing people together at the same time, doesn't it? It has a way of uniting people in a passion, in an interest. It absolutely does. And the point you make is such a good one and such a relevant one at this time, Matt, because no more than around now do people need to appreciate that. You know, uh, this week in Sport, I'm on Sport with Simon Jordan uh, every morning, 10 to 1. And he and I were talking this week about the situation with the Celtic, the Celtic board banning this section of the, the Celtic support, the Green Brigade. Uh, and then almost as if to stay relevant in the news themselves, a, a big section of the Rangers support ran into trouble up at Dens Park, Dundee this week, 
by letting off flares and pyrotechnics. And they grabbed the headlines up on Tayside for the wrong reasons as well. Celtic and Rangers should do one hell of a lot more, Matt, to unify football. To uh, There should be much more of a coming together between the two clubs. And quite frankly, there is not. And there should be. And I think the people at the top of both clubs have got a duty and a responsibility to try and, sh- and ensure that that happens an awful lot more. Because, you know, what, Celtic on the east end of, of Glasgow, Rangers on the south side of the city, poles apart, never the twain shall meet. There's always hassle about an away allocation when it comes to Rangers having Celtic over to, to Ibrox and vice versa. There shouldn't be. They should invite each other to each other's stadiums in an ideal world and get on with things because the world is a big, bad, dangerous place at the moment and we don't need football to add itself to that list. It's such an interesting thing, football support and and football allegiance. Of course, in the case of Rangers and Celtic, historically, there have been religious connotations. If you're someone like me and you enjoy watching live sport, you enjoy the spectacle, you enjoy the drama, and you'll go to watch Tottenham at Tottenham or Arsenal at Arsenal, United up at Old Trafford, go to Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park, you see people so passionate about their club, but they could, in many cases, quite easily be passionate about another club. We need a degree of rivalry, don't we? We need people. And it's not just the top level clubs either. It's right the way up and down the the football leagues and beyond. We we need that loyalty because it's part of what makes sport work. But at the same time, we can kind of almost acknowledge the we can acknowledge the randomness often as to why one person will support one club and another the other. It could be within families, brothers, sisters and so forth. Mm. Yeah, exactly right. It should be at that level. Um, I mean, I think there are very few families probably in central Scotland that one member of the family supports Celtic and another member supports Rangers. If that's not the case, it should be more of the case, to be quite honest, Matt. And I'm glad that I lived and worked through a sequence of events. And I was I was involved in it and I covered it. When Sunis, when Graham Sunis was player manager at Rangers and by that stage was managing, I think he'd stopped playing by then. But there was an enormous controversy when Morris Johnston, once of Celtic, looked as if he was going to return to Celtic after a spell with Nantes in France. And what did he do? Soon as moved in and the rest is history. Johnston went as the first high-profile Roman Catholic to play for Rangers. And that, Matt, to me, was brilliant. Not on the day. In Glasgow, it was an incredible scene. There were, there were distraught Rangers fans outside Ibrox uh, who were protesting about it. There were Celtic fans on the other side of the city protesting that Johnson had done the unthinkable. To me, it was brilliant, and it always will be, seeing Johnson run out in the colours of Rangers and scoring for Rangers against his former club, Celtic. That was groundbreaking, to say the least. There was that sliding doors moment that you mentioned in the book involving John Hartson, the former Wales international, because, of course, he was on the point of signing for Rangers and no doubt would have done, wouldn't he, had he not failed that medical. And not long after, he found himself playing for Celtic, being very successful there and having five seasons there. Very much so. I mean, Rangers' loss was Celtic's gain in, in, in a big, big way. Matt, funnily enough, I was talking about that the other day to a friend of yours, someone I've known for years, Martin O'Neill, because it was Martin who moved in uh, and took Hartson. They seized the moment, Matt, and that was brilliant by Celtic because Hartson was distraught. He, he had left the Wales camp, he'd gone up to, to uh, Rangers and was really excited about joining Rangers, but he'd had, he'd had a history of problems in the past with this suspect knee. And what do you know, that showed up uh, during the medical. So... Momentarily, when he went back, he was absolutely crestfallen that the move didn't work. He returned to England and then came back and the rest of his history. He was sensational at Celtic and was part of that amazing team under Martin O'Neill with uh, Chris Sutton and um, Henrik Larsson and got all the way to that UEFA Cup final in Seville against Mourinho's Porto and just missed out. But yeah, it's a sliding doors moment, exactly as you say. And... Um, I love it. That, those stories, Matt, like the, the Mo Johnson story and the John Hartson story, that's what football should be much more about. 
we're going to come to to deadline day itself and to the to the transfer markets and the sagas, the excitements, the dramas that can accompany it, of course. But I want to get a bit more of a sense of you first because you have the limelight now. You, you've got your own show there on Talk Sport every day. I can only imagine that's fantastic fun. You've got a big reputation. You've got half a million followers on Twitter. And yet there's a lot of hard work that goes into it to, to reach the point where you, I imagine you just have an enormous amount of to fun. You've got to do the hard work, the nitty gritty stuff. And, and perhaps you could take us back to the beginning because you had a real facility for getting the big interview, didn't you? And you had a nose for a story. And I think you write in the book that being able to get your editor a story, a good story, a big story, is actually mm. more important as a, a sort of written journalist, a, a print journalist, than being able to write well. Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always thought of myself, Matt, as um, a reporter who happens to present. I've been a presenter most of my professional life. At Scottish TV, I would always go after a story. Um, I fancied myself, and you've probably read it in the book, in the earlier days at Scottish TV, my early 20s, I fancied myself as a bit of an entertainment reporter. And I would get out and about. Um, I would be waiting in the in the lane beside the now defunct Glasgow Apollo Theatre and Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall uh, drove around the corner because the stones were on that night. I tried to box pop him. He walked right by me. I hung around. The next thing we get invited in by a member of the, the Stones backroom team. Come on in, Mick will speak to you. And I loved stuff like that, Matt. That, I loved it. I went through to Murrayfield, of all places, the venue for David Bowie uh, in concert. And um, I hung around, managed to get an invite in. And what do you know, I had about 15 or 20 minutes with David Bowie, very close to the time he was going on stage. And Bowie was a delight, man. I was too young, though. I look back in these interviews and I kind of cringe because if I'd known then what I know now about how to structure and ask a question, the interviews would, would have been one hell of a lot more entertaining and much better for everybody concerned. But hey-ho, it was what it was. And thereafter, I used to do the same when I get into football. Uh, Sooners gave me a massive story that he was going to go to Rangers as player-manager. I, I grabbed that story and then... Got a whole bunch of them after that. He would call me up, get out to Glasgow Airport, Terry Butcher, England captain coming in, Mark Hately coming in on the same day that Celtic signed Mick McCarthy. So I grabbed both that day. And it's all about being in the spot. And I'm a self-starter, Matt. I don't wait to be told, we think that you should interview so-and-so. I go after the people. And that's why to this day on this thing, I've, got, I've still got about 2,000 contacts, many of whom, of course, I don't bother about now. We don't speak, but many, quite a sizable number I still keep in touch with. And it's about, it's about getting contacts, getting names, going after names, and then persuading them to come on air. And if you can do that, you've cracked it. And I still do that to this day. There's a brilliant story as well in the book where you tried to get this interview with one of the great ballet dancers of all time, Nuriev, who I think didn't give many interviews. Just <laughs> brief, just briefly tell us that story, because it ended up being, according to his agent or whoever it was, the first interview he'd ever given where ballet wasn't actually mentioned at all. Well, I mean, that, that's a great example of it, Matt, to be honest. Uh, Scottish TV, I was through, I managed to persuade them, let me go through to the Edinburgh Festival and Fringe. There's some big names through there. I'll get some interviews. Of course, I, I didn't have a sodding clue as to who I would, I would get. But I remember going through, I lived in Glasgow, I went through to Edinburgh with a cameraman. And on the way through, I'm reading the paper, and it was going on about Rudolf Nureyev, the iconic Russian ballet dancer. Um, he was the biggest name at the festival, but he had put it out there that um, at no time, during this uh, this uh, his spell in Edinburgh, would he be uh, giving an interview? He wanted just to go and do what he loves, go and dance, and then leave after the festival. I thought, I'm going to get Nuria. And uh, I found out he was staying at the Caledonian Hotel just off Princess Street. He comes out. We waited a while. He comes out with his poncho on and a kind of cloth cap and a couple of people. And like, Mr. Nuria, hi, I'm Jim White from Scottish TV. And of course, uh, as he should have, as, as he should, he looked at me and totally ignored me, got in a car and, and uh, disappeared off into, into the afternoon. But I heard that he was going up to the Usher Hall uh, in Edinburgh, which you may well know, and he was going to rehearse. So the cameraman and myself jumped into our car, went a detour, but beat him to it. And when he got out of the Usher Hall, he was like, oh, you again? I said, yeah, me again. Come on, what about a couple of minutes? And the publicist was 
well, do you want to? And Yurev is, okay, yes. And Yurev actually says to me, uh, it's, still, it's still in the archive at Scottish TV, you're a difficult one. I tried to shake you off at the hotel, but you're a difficult one. So, okay, on you go. And then I'm stumped, man, because what I know about ballet, I can write in big letters in the back of a postage stamp. But um, I spoke to him about Edinburgh. I spoke to him about the beauty of the city. He was in total agreement about that. He told me about where he'd go. Sometimes 1 or 2 a.m., he would take a walk uh, uh, in various parts of Edinburgh along Princess Street, Princess Street Gardens. He was fascinating. And at the end of it, the publicist said to me, well done in getting the interview. That's the only interview I've seen Uriah do, and Bally was not mentioned. I'll tell you what, I've spent many years interviewing people, and I, I was learning from your book because you say something that perhaps is obvious, but actually the likes of myself could really do with picking up on it. And that's that sometimes the left field question can produce the more interesting answer. And you give this example of an Antonio Conte press conference. I think he was at Chelsea, perhaps at the time. And mm. you, were, you were in the room there as a journalist. And someone asked him what he was going to be doing with Mrs. Conte on Valentine's Day. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, well, 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 that's right. Funnily enough, Matt, on Conte, I found him a very interesting uh, figure. And I was very disappointed that it didn't work out for him at Chelsea because um, I wanted to get to know him an awful lot more. And of course, he ends up at Tottenham and it very definitely uh, didn't work out there. But at times, as you rightly say, if you throw one in from left field, you never quite know what is coming back. There was huge uproar in another area. I got to know Farhad Mashiri very well, um, Matt, you know, the, the, the majority shareholder at Everton. And um, I, was, I was told that Farhad might want to speak to me. If I went to uh, Chelsea Everton, then Farhad would maybe have a word with me in a box afterwards. And I went there. And one thing, I, I mentioned this in the book, Matt, you've got to take... You've got, I don't want to sound like an old know-it-all and listen to me because this is how you should do it. You've got to take full advantage of every moment in our business. So I go into a suite at the end of it and there's Farhad Mashiri. I'm like, Farhad, it's, it's great to meet you. Standing beside Farhad is his great friend, uh, Uzmanov, Alisha Uzmanov. And I kind of was like, uh, hello, Mr. Uzmanov. And I concentrated on Farhad and set up an interview on Talk Sport for the following day. And I left thinking damn it, what an opportunity I've just passed up there with Uzmanov. But then many, many, many months afterwards uh, and after a few unsuccessful managers have come and gone, he appoints Rafa Benitez, Farhad, and I got in touch with them. And it's just, they either do it or they don't, to be honest, Matt. And that morning he says to me, I'm in a, I'm in a hotel in Italy. I'm sitting beside the fountain. It's quite noisy. You need to speak up or we're going to do this interview. So I thought, oh, well, Farhad's going to do it. I said, Farhad, Benitez, he's in love with Liverpool. And Farhad says, no, Jim, he's in love with the city of Liverpool. He'll be happy at Everton. And of course, it very definitely didn't work out. So it, it's all about a moment, man. It's all about maybe how you phrase a question. You're never quite sure what's coming back, as you rightly say there with Conte. I've had a whole host of those kind of things. And funnily enough, the Nureyev thing in the boot is one that I look back with great fondness and I think, what was I doing? What must he have thought? But he must have liked me and he must have warmed to me or he wouldn't have done it. I think the, the answer that Conte gave was that he was having to watch a Champions League game between two teams that weren't his own. So... I'm not, I'm not sure what Mrs. Conte would have thought about that. But I guess if you marry someone who's, who lives and breathes football, then that sort of thing becomes a, the norm. Yeah. But I'll ask you, Jim, how seriously do you take Valentine's Day? <laughs> um, well, yes, I, I send the odd card, Matt. Thank you for asking. And I receive the odd card, even at 66, mate. I don't know what it is. Um, these days, I, I, Simon Jordan has introduced me to Creed Aftershave which costs an arm and a leg. And that seems to do the trick, Matt. So I strongly recommend it to you, my friend. You might get the odd kiss and the card this coming Valentine's Day. Where do you feel most comfortable, on TV or on radio? Oh, mate, what a good question. Do you know something, Matt? I haven't, I've, never really, I've never really spoken about it. At Sky, um, you know, especially with deadline day, uh, I became so well known in the yellow tie and everything like that. And here I am, and I'm in I'm in a very familiar environment. I'm on air, I'm on telly, blah, blah, blah. 
But in a radio studio, especially with Simon, and to use a phrase I used to use on deadline day, it's more expect the unexpected. And I love it. You can freestyle it more, Matt. And as I said to you earlier on, I'm, I'm still a reporter who happens to present. And I ended up in a TV studio with four cameras around me with autocue on them. And by and large, I ignore autocue and I freestyle it because I, be, I can't be bothered reading other people's words because they're not mine and it doesn't sound like me. So I'd ad lib a lot. In the studio in TalkSport, I feel so at home. It's wonderful in the 17th floor of the news building overlooking the river. Uh, you're right down by the shard. And it's so uplifting. Um, it's so motivating in itself. And I've got Jordan sitting there. I could have Graham Sooner sitting there. I could have Martin O'Neill sitting there. I could have Martin Keown there. And it's really good. And you're like, three hours, let's go. Let's go. Doors to manual. And I feel so good in that environment because you don't know what's going to be happening in the course of the three hours. One of the things that radio enables you to do is to stay in touch with the fans, right? So you're yeah. not just talking to other experts such as yourself, players, managers, and so forth. You're making contact with the people who go week in, week out. Right. Very much so. Um, I find on radio, Matt, um, I can go to games and a guy will come up to me at a match. I try to go to a game either every Saturday or Sunday or maybe in midweek. Uh, not just in the London area. I took myself off to Forest Green Rovers the other day to meet Dale Vince, uh, the owner up there. But people come up to me and, and say to me, you don't, you don't remember me. I'm John so-and-so. I phoned your show one morning. I came on with you and Sam. And I'm like, man, we get so many callers. I don't remember you, but I'm delighted that you did do. And they feel they're part of it. And I really, really love that. And one thing I would say to you, Matt, and we met, Cavi and I mentioned this in the book. This was Cavi's idea, actually. One moment that, of, of, that, of, that really illustrates that is when, sadly, we lost Ray Wilkins. And when Ray died, Matt, I was on the, uh, on the morning that Ray passed away. And I think Simon Jordan was on with me that day. And I don't know if you recall, we got a, we got a call from an ex-soldier who had been homeless and living in London, uh, living on the street. And he, he says, I just want to tell you a story about Ray Wilkins. Ray Wilkins saw me outside uh, one of the stations, I can't remember if it was Paddington or St Pancras, came up, sat down in my piece of cardboard, gave me 20 quid, chatted away to me, and that 20 quid got me in a hostel that night. Uh, I met a guy in a hostel. We continued to meet each other. I, I met someone that he knew, a really nice girl, I'm now engaged to the girl. I've managed to get myself together. I put a lot of black memories behind me and I'm giving life a serious go because of the night that Ray Wilkins met me as we sat on that piece of cardboard. That call, Matt, is it something like, four, I don't know, something like four to six million views. Absolutely insane. But moments like that, you remember. What a moment that was, and I've never forgotten it. And the text of the call is in the book, as you probably saw. Something that you've been very public about is you, your sobriety. You, you've now been sober. Is it? It's more than a decade now. Is it? Is it twelve years? It's twelve years. 12 yeah. Years. And I, I wonder whether that also pe people are able to relate to you because you have been open about your own struggles as a human being. I, I when I was. When I used to present on LBC, I was open about my struggles that I sometimes had with mental health. And I hope that that helped other people to talk about their own struggles, but also to realize that they weren't alone. It can be a powerful thing when a man in a position of that, that you hold are able to talk about these things. Sure. I mean, I, I, about 12, well, 12 years ago, uh, Matt, I, I was clearly drinking too much. Uh, and one or two people had said it to me and mentioned it to me. And I was on telly and I could feel, Matt, that there was a kind of a whispering behind the scenes. Jim's not looking his best. That wasn't his best show. He wasn't coming over too well. And I thought, I got to do something about this. My only regret, Matt, and I say in all earnestly to you, is that I should have chucked it many more years previous and I didn't. So uh, come the time that I did, it was like a decision I just made overnight. And I thought, now I'm canning that for a while. I'll go to the end of the month, not have a drink. And I didn't miss it at all. 
and I was feeling good and sounding good. And I was answerable to the people I should be answerable to, both professionally and uh, in, in my private life. And then one month became six, six months became a year, and I thought, I'm on this, I'm staying on it. This is great. I can honestly say to you, Matt, but please, people shouldn't take this the wrong way. <clears throat> it hasn't been a problem. I haven't had a problem with it. I went to a few AA meetings, and um, I listened and sat and... Um, I think I said a few words and I thought, this is fine. But eventually you've got to cut the cord and go out on your own. And I did. And um, every single day, is it's a new day. It's a new challenge. Not in the sense of alcohol being the challenge, um, but, it, but it's a great new landscape for me. And it's fresh and it's upbeat and it's uplifting. And I love it. And I've embraced it since the day and hour. I pushed that last drink away. Um, and they always say, Matt, nothing changes if nothing changes. And it's very true. So nothing changes if you don't change it. So change it. And I did. And I feel great. Did you see yourself as an alcoholic? Um, I, I saw myself as someone who certainly drank too much. With me, Matt, it was either I wouldn't have a drink one weekend, but I couldn't wait to the next weekend to get absolutely blottled. And the next weekend might take me to the Tuesday or Wednesday night. And somehow I was getting away with it through Tuesday and Wednesday at work. And that's no way to live. You're cheating other people around you. You're cheating people you value, but you're cheating yourself. And I thought, oh, for what? For what? To get a sore head and throw up. Like, no, I'm, I'm just not doing it any longer. Not doing it. Could you talk to me about friendship? You meet all sorts of people. You meet a lot of very famous people. You, you, you no doubt mix in interesting circles, certainly professionally, may, maybe in your private life as well, I don't know. But is friendship an important part of your life? And have you collected friends from different, different strands of the last decades? Do, do you still have, stay in touch with people from when you were much younger? How important is friendship to you? Oh, it's a great question. Funnily enough, the book is dedicated to a lad, Fraser Robertson, as you probably saw, Matt, who was a colleague of mine. Fraser used to come in on a Friday night. I used to do a show on a Friday night in Scotland called Extra Time with Hazel Irvin. And it was produced and directed by a guy, Andy Melvin, who eventually became the deputy managing director at Sky Sports and eventually um, asked me to come down to London. But um, yeah, Fraser... We used to come in on a Friday night and would go out and get Fraser's job was as a runner to get the early edition of the Daily Record, the Scottish Sun. Uh, and he would come back with him and we'd finish our show with, well, let's see what's in the, make the news tomorrow morning. And then Fraser eventually headed south himself. He was considerably younger than me, but I would try and help Fraser. And we were good friends, but very good colleagues too. And then, as you probably noticed in the book, um, Fraser sadly passed away and I, I was I was heartbroken about that uh, he left a young wife and a young daughter and uh, I'm still in touch with his, his, uh, his wife but um, that hit me very hard but it, it, it showed me I was, I was so proud of the fact that Fraser and I had built a very strong friendship that endured quite a number of years Matt and it's very very important and um, Simon Jordan, who I work with now, I never thought we'd be pals. I'm from Glasgow. He's a very well-spoken Londoner. But we're very tight. We're very close. Simon had ill health recently, as you probably heard, with cancer. And I knew about it for a while. And I was worried about him. And he knew I was worried about him. And if we, if we had a, a, a strong-ish bond, it's very stronger. It's much stronger now. I have friends who I've known for 35 years. 40 years, Matt, in Glasgow, who I'm still in touch with, who threatened to come down to see me in London and never do. Funnily enough, one of them phoned me this morning, Campbell, a good friend of mine, to say he wants to see uh, West Ham against Forest next weekend. Can I come down? And I said, yeah, come and stay here. I've got plenty of room. So friendship is very, very important to me. And I, I always want everybody to know that in spite of me, you know, I can, I can walk down to the Shard from, from my place now, Matt, and have half a dozen conversations with people in the street who I've never met. But people who I've known for many years just need to go with that. That's what I bring, unfortunately. Uh, and, and whether they like that or don't like it, 
that's a part of me. Funnily enough, Matt, I, I, I met Rod Stewart in Mexico back in 1986. He was supporting Scotland. He was recording an album in LA and he'd fly down, fly back and whatnot. And I interviewed him after we'd lost to Denmark. And all these years on, we stay very, very close. And now he's Sir Rod Stewart. I was at a charity event across the Canary Wharf recently with him. He, he very kindly came to that. Chris Evans and Eddie Temple Morris from Virgin Radio uh, had asked me, can I bring somebody? So I brought Sir Rod and they absolutely loved it. Rod and I walked in and he did it for me as a favour, as a friend. We walked in, uh, Matt, and this very well-heeled London gentleman said, oh, Rod, Dolce & Gabbana shoes. I love those. I'll give you five grand for them. And Rod took them off and then spent the rest of his evenings walking about in his socks. But it was a great night. And Rod Stewart, I know it sounds a bit, oh, Jim, Jim White, you sound a bit of a um, you know, name dropper there. Rod's brilliant. I mean, he gets in touch with me at all times of the day or night, texting me, saying, have you seen this? Have you seen that? What about this guy who's playing for hearts? Do you think he's any good? Wonderful guy. And um, people like that are sort of the earth, man. They're true friends. They're megastars, but they're pals. Jim, this is a difficult <laughs> question for, for anyone to answer. We know you from... We know you professionally. Well, we know we know you as the host on TV previously and now mainly on, on the radio and for your love and your passion for the, the game. What do you like as a person? <laughs> um, well, I think, I, I think I'd like to think, Matt, that, and especially in these days of sobriety, mate, when I can be my own judge and jury, I'd like to think I'm a warm, inclusive guy who's got time for people. I've never let any of what I do ever go to my head because it's a job like any other. And Matt, what I would say is, you know, like in the pursuit of all these breaking news, breaking stories, et cetera, I always look upon it as that I haven't broken my biggest story yet. I haven't got my biggest interview yet. I hope to get it, but I haven't got it yet. But as a person, I very much hope that I, I, I can, if I can do anything for anybody, I will do it within all logical bounds. Uh, and I, I hope, as I say, I, I hope that I'm warm and open and I've never let any of this so-called fame from the media go to my head. I'd absolutely be ashamed of myself if I had. How do you hold on to the hu human stories, the, the human dimension, the humanity of transfers? however big they are, that there are human beings at the heart of them. And you're, of course, after the story and you've developed all these relationships that help you to get the story, you're excited about it and you want to communicate that excitement. And, of course, you want to be first to the story. Mm. Are you able always to remember that there are human beings, there are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers of these football players, as I say, however wealthy they are, that, you know, that lives are impacted by this and is it is it possible to hold on to that at the same time as being driven quite understandably and importantly by the story yeah and and again a great point because many many occasions Matt have forgotten that or have chosen to overlook that in pursuit of getting the story uh doesn't matter about Gareth Bale um as a boy it doesn't matter what, what his family think I need to know the, the moment of the hour of the, the day that he is going from Tottenham to Real Madrid for a new world record. And I need to get that information. Your point's a good one. Matt, I'll give you this example. I always remember, as you probably will, the famous night Peter Odom Wingy pitched up in Loftus Road. Having been advised by West Brom, this move can happen tonight for you if you want to go to QPR. And it'll, be, it'll be worth a lot of money to our club and it could be worth a bit of money to you but the clock is ticking as Jim White would say in Sky Sports News so get a bend on and get to West London in 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 in, in the, the 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 hope that your presence near to QPR will get the move through so Peter did what he was advised and between West Bromwich and going to West London he said so many different agents tried to jump on that deal and various component parts of the deal didn't happen um, by the time he got to London, there was next to no chance, Matt, he was going to go to QPR. And, of course, I linked to a reporter 
who's down there. I'd heard Odom Wingy sitting in a Range Rover outside um, Loftus Road. Let's get to it. What's he doing there if the move hasn't happened? And I didn't consider Peter's feelings enough in all of that. And Peter Odom Wingy was pretty much ridiculed for having made this trip and tried to act as a catalyst himself to get the move through. And I always remember that and I thought that must have been a pretty embarrassing, pretty forgettable moment for Peter, one that he will not like to dwell on. So I said to Cabby, that's got to be mentioned in the book. But more than that, today we've got to make contact with Peter and find out exactly what happened so that he can put the story right. And as you probably saw in the, in the, in the book, Matt, at the end of it, Peter quite rightly says a whole bunch of things led to the move collapsing, but it was me that was left with egg in my chin, and I had to go back to, to West Bromwich. Then he went to Stoke, and he scored goals for fun, and he proved what a good player he was. But he says in the book, one day I'll name names. I haven't done it yet, but I'll name names. And I look forward to that, man. Good player. Played 60-odd times, didn't he, for Nigeria, I think. Good player he was. Big, rangy guy as well. Difficult to handle. Yeah. So tell me this, you've been in football for perhaps even longer than you might care to, 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 to remember or admit to, Jim. But what would you say is the, the, the most fundamental way in which the game has changed? And I think you say in the book that it's not your fault that the game has changed, that you still love the game. You, you get a very strong sense you still love making a living out of the game. How has it changed and how do you, would you say you've adapted to those changes? I think... One area that it hasn't changed, Matt, is that the game still throws up this incredible number of characters, all of whom have a story to tell. And it's down to people like you and me and others to get the story out of them. Um, all from different walks of life, all from different levels of society. I mean, I loved, I loved my contact with the, the late George Reynolds, one-time safe blower, owner of Darlington, who tried to get Faustino Espria to Darlington, if you remember that. And, uh, you know, he, he's like, oh, Jim, we've got my bungalow. We've got my great deal. He's got a car. He's coming. This ex-Newcastle star is going to be a sensation. And then I got in touch, he got in touch with me the following day. I said, I haven't heard anything, George. How's it going? And he, he says to me, he, he's fucked off, Jim. I mean, honestly, Matt, I can still remember that. But... The game, to, to, so from the point of view of throwing up so many different characters, the game hasn't changed, Matt. There, there's a whole plethora of characters out there. It's up to us to get near them and get to them and get their stories from them, all of which would, I would have thought would be very entertaining. But money has changed the game enormously, enormously. And if you were to say to me tonight, Jim, go get an interview with a Liverpool player. It's, it's very, very difficult. Go and get an interview with a top Arsenal player. Get an interview with, uh, with so-and-so. Money talks. Um, uh, the, the players will only do interviews when the media department suggests that they should do at those clubs. The media departments try and protect those players. The players earn a fortune. They don't like talking about the money they make. And that's where Simon Jordan comes in, Matt. And that's where he's brilliant doesn't matter about the, the amount of money. The, in some cases, the ridiculously inflated amounts that these guys earn, they still get a duty to tell us about themselves. And that's exactly how I look upon it. Simon, of course, owned Crystal Palace, didn't he, at one time? Yeah. And I wonder whether you prefer going to watch Spurs in that remarkable modern stadium or going to watch Palace play at Selhurst Park, as I did a year ago or so for the first time. And they've still got those green slopes, haven't they, between the stands and people go out at half time and have a, have a pint on the grass. It, it felt to me like something from a different era. I mean, in a way, there's a, there's a sort of beauty to both of them, isn't there? Very much so. Uh, funnily enough, I, I, I was thinking exactly that just recently. I went to Brentford Burnley a uh, week before last in Brentford's new community stadium, right on Kew Bridge. I don't know if you've been there, Matt. Um, I've got a flat down there, um, and I know the area well. So it's a stone's throw from Sky, of course, at Austerley. And I was sitting looking at the lovely stadium, and I was sitting in amongst some of the well-heeled Brentford fans. They were like, what do you make of this? And I said, oh, that's brilliant. But we were all agreed. We all miss Griffin Park with a pub in each corner. 
and definitely there's still a place for these for these stadia in in the game. Of course there is, Matt. But these days now, with, with you know, with so many so many regulations that the club have got to meet, the the stadiums are totally different. They're state of the art, and you miss some of these old traditional traditional uh, stadiums, and you miss the Bovril sellers outside, the program sellers. I would hate it if clubs, and it will come, Matt, many, many clubs these days, are, are match programs are now no longer worth having uh, financially. And yet, buying a match program with Robbie going to Celtic Parker Ibrox on match day when I was a kid, before he lifted me over the turnstile, was such a big part of my day. But we've got to move with the times, mate. We've got to move with the times. I mean, I, could we ever have imagined that a, a player here would be earning 250 grand a week? No, no, we, we couldn't. A million a month? No. I mean, it's it's obscene and it's crazy, but it's happened. And you finish the book actually talking about the late, great Trevor Francis, don't you, who who was who was transferred for a million pounds. First million pound player? Was it first million pound player in Britain yeah. or worldwide? I can't, I can't remember. Was it worldwide? I, I think it was just in Britain. I think right. it was in Britain. And Trevor Francis's name was forever up there because of that very fact. Um, and Cabby made the point to me, we were talking about it and we both agreed, Trevor Francis, a footballer, is more of the story and the memory we should have than Trevor Francis, the first million pound uh, player and funnily enough I don't know if I mentioned it in the book Matt when I went out to do a documentary at Scottish TV on Graham Souness when he played for Sampdoria in Italy Trevor Francis was playing there as well in the same Sampdoria team and I got to know Trevor quite well and I kidded Souness on out there because all the Sampdoria fans were like oh Trevor Francis Trevor Francis and I said to Souness which is what you don't say to Souness they love him more than they, they love you Graham you, know, you can see that can't you and Sooners wasn't happy about that. But one thing I always remember, Matt, on that trip, I was going to Sampdoria Benfica, European tie, and Sooners said, get the cameraman on the bus, and you can travel with us to the tie. And Graham sat with Trevor Francis, and we filmed the two of them. And Sooners says to me, film these two sitting behind. They'll be stars one day. Big mad hairstyles, curly hair, their shirt, their tie's undone. Viali on the inside, Mancini on the outside. Just kids. Viali, the late great Viali, he didn't end up with much hair, did he? He did. He did not, mate. He did not. And I ended up knowing him quite well in, uh, in his time uh, back here. It was very sad. So you do your your radio shows in the week, but do you make sure that you go to at least one game every weekend to to keep your toes in it, to to make sure that you're you're seeing it for yourself? Yes. Yes, I do. I mean, um, on this phone, there's I've got an app called the, the Reporters App, and this this becomes this is all I need, Matt. This is all I need. So uh, I, I go to I go to matches. I get behind the scenes afterwards. Luckily, the deadline day face helps, and guy, oh yeah, come in, Jim, come in. And before before anybody knows what you've done, I've managed to pull off like a five or six minute interview with a player. Uh, which I, which, which I, I, I love trying to do. And I think it's just grabbing the moment. You know, you've got to be... Also, it helps on a Monday morning, Matt, when I can say to, when I can say to Simon or say to uh, Martin Keown, well, I went to... Uh, I was at West Ham um, uh, against Chelsea uh, at the weekend there. Let me tell you, one thing behind the scenes that was quite interesting at the end, and then people are thinking, well, he doesn't just sit in his arse at the weekend. He's out there. Like we are. He's out there. You get the inevitable messages coming through on a Monday morning. Bet you didn't pay for your ticket, though, Jim. You're like, oh, God, you can't please everybody. And no, I didn't. But, um, and you get, I've, I've managed to get real bits of gold, Matt. I am pretty unusual in that respect, I have to say, mate. Glenn Johnson, uh, the former Liverpool defender, was on one day with me on Talk Sport. And Glenn didn't say much, but when he did, you were like, wow. And he says one day, yeah, when I was at, um, where was he? At Stoke. He said, um, Saido Berahino played at Stoke. And he said, Saido Berahino, honestly, I wasn't having him at all. I mean, talk about a guy who should have done more, uh, been more proactive. He was late for training session. He just annihilated this Saido Berahino. So I, was, I came away from it. And I thought, geez, that's very unlike Glenn, Matt, you know, to really open up on someone like that. 
But I thought the story's only half done. So I got home that night and it was around the second or it was like the second week in December in about 2018. And um, I looked and I found Saido Berahino is playing for Zulta Varagam in Belgium. So the following morning, I looked at Zulta Varagam are playing that night, the Saturday night against Shawa. Who the hell are they? But I went to I went to, to St Pancras and I got Eurostar. And I went to Brussels and I went to Varagam and I pitched up and I thought, I've got to try and get a word with them. And Sandro Berahino was man of the match. He, he, he played a blinder. I go behind the scenes afterwards and he's like, fucking hell, Jim White. I'm like, yeah, 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 how are you? He said, I heard Glenn Johnson gave me absolute pelters on your show. And I said, yeah, he did. Do you want to do something? He said, yeah, I do. So I get 20 minutes with Sandro saying, yeah, at times he was a little bit lazy and at times he needed a bit of a G up, but he didn't need that kind of criticism from Glenn and he refuted X, Y, and Z. So I came back and we played the interview and um, it got quite a reaction. It got quite a reaction and I still keep in touch with Saida. Just take us briefly, if you would, into the heart of deadline day from Jim White's perspective because that is perhaps the thing you're most famous for. You've already give us, given us some intimations as how you made that work with your contacts and so forth, your nose for a story. What's it actually like when you're doing it? And do you have time amidst the craziness to love it? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, funnily enough, Matt, I, I, I did love it. I loved, I, I loved certain ones more than others because of what happened within them. But there are always great comedic moments as well. Uh, moments that, you know, obviously were Harry. Um, but I would build up to it. I would always remain, try and remain quite calm. I mean, people at Sky would be calling me saying, when are you actually coming in the building? Um, you know, you're, you're on it whenever it was, eight or nine at night. And I'd say, I'll, I'll be in at six. All right, we'll text the news desk when you're coming in so we can get cameraman to film you coming in. Like, you know, breaking news, Jim White's arrived in the building. I mean, honestly, it was stuff like that. And then that would be trendy. I mean, you can't believe it. But I bought into all that, Matt, because I had to. I was a, I'd become a big part of it. And um, it was flattering and it was fun and everything like that. And I loved it. You know, like I would get involved in information gathering and the build up to going on. I would have fun with the people I was on with. I'd be texting like crazy. Inevitably, Harry Redknapp would be on to me. Jim, Jim, do you, you know, maybe a deal that he wasn't involved in. But do you know what I've heard? Listen, you might want to, you might want to act on this. Harry was phenomenally helpful to me. And before I knew what I was, Matt, it was like, you know, 20 seconds to the clock, to the clock stops ticking towards the deadline itself. And then you hit Big Ben. And then it's a kind of, well, that's it. That's it until the next one. I hope you enjoyed it, ladies and gentlemen. And then over the next hour, you pick over the pieces of the best ones. And then I would go home and I'd be absolutely out of my feet. But um, I look back at them thinking it was just great to be, like you were one of the lead actors in a major, major production in the West End. It's like that. And everybody's anticipating your every moment, your every move. Final question, although I may have a bonus one, is... <laughs> Tell us your passions outside football, because we know you for your football. It is, I'm sure, your greatest passion, although you can correct me if I'm wrong. How, how do you unwind? What, what, what sort of catches your eye? What do you do outside of work, outside of football? Yeah, so on, the, on the odd occasion I go up to Scotland, I love it. You know, I'm from Glasgow, Matt, and I'll go and, you know, I'll meet a couple of friends in Glasgow. I'll make a, I'll make a long weekend of it. No alcohol involved. Well, not for me, certainly. And, th and that's great. Sometimes I drive up and I'll go down to places like, I don't know if you know Scotland, Matt, like in the West Coast, down Troon, uh, Turnbury, down that way. My mum and dad used to take me and my sister to North Berwick on the outskirts in East Lothian for our holidays. Uh, it breaks my heart, but sometimes uh, I don't have them any longer, but I'll go, I don't my mum and dad, but I'll go through to North Berwick and have a look around. And I love doing things like that. I'm very fortunate, Matt. As I'm talking to you, mate, I'm looking right at St. Paul's Cathedral. The Tate Modern's there and the Shard's there, and I can see all three. So sometimes I take myself off at night, um, sometimes accompanied, sometimes not, and I'll have a wander around up there. I'll go into St. Paul's, I'll just I'll take a seat in the cathedral. I know them up there and just sit at the back. 
I'm not a religious man, Matt, but I like doing things like that. And it gives you a sense of calm. And, and I like that. And um, the, what I mentioned earlier on, uh, theater, cinema, I do a bit of that. And it's funny, things land in your, you, you land in your feet, Matt. I mean, at times I think I'm more, I'm better being lucky than good. I went, I went to a production one night in the West End and there was a bit of hiatus. The lights went down. There was a bit of hiatus as whoever was going to take one of the seats beside me. I couldn't see who it was. The lights went up at the interval and it was Bradley Cooper, the Hollywood actor. I'm like, fucking hell, how are you? And then I ended up at the interval in a room with them chatting to him. So um, things like that happen. This city's fabulous, Matt. You can't fail in London. It's got too much to offer. It's wonderful. And if you don't buy into that, then there's something wrong with you. I have to ask you this. There's a, a framed, it looks like a framed football shirt over your left shoulder. And, it, and I'm going to, it looks like, it looks like it's, well, there are several, but it looks like it's an orange shirt. It's a number 10, and I'm wondering who it is. I can't read the name. Is it a Burkamp, a Netherlands shot? Who, who is it? It's a Swedish striker who played for PSG. Not, not, not Ibrahimovic, is it? It is. Oh, wow. It <laughs> Fantastic. is. Fantastic. Ibrahimovic. I've got a bunch of them along there. In the middle, you can't see it. But um, I did an interview in Qatar with uh, Neymar's dad. He came into the hotel one morning, breakfast, him and about 12 other people. And I was like, who the hell is this? It was Neymar's father. And this English-speaking member of the party said, uh, he thinks you were on Sky. And I'm like, yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, I'll come over. So I went over to speak to him. And I ended up, Matt, producing the phone and doing a chat with Neymar's dad. And Neymar was injured that night for the game against Cameroon. And I said to his old man, listen, thanks so much. That was brilliant. Um, you're so proud. That came through in our chat. You're so proud that uh, your, your name is Dan. And uh, one of the members of the party, are you staying in the hotel? I said, yeah. What room? I said, 802. I think 802, yeah, 802. And I got back about three in the morning because it was a long way back from the stadium to the hotel. And I go, I go to reception and reception say, we let somebody in the room, they wanted to drop something off. And I, I, I got to my room and there, there in the loo, hanging up the coat hanger was a signed Neymar shirt. The life and times of Jim White. What enormous fun. Thank you so much for answering my 20 questions, Jim. It's, it's been a really entertaining hour or so. Thank you. I hope so. You're great, Matt. You made it easy for me, mate. It was, I, I feel as though we know each other anyway, mate.